This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. Greetings, Homo sapiens. Welcome to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. Guys, uh, how we doing out there? Are we going to be okay? We're going to make it through? It's a weird time in the U.S. right now. Um, we did want to continue our theme of making in the Americas, and we've got an awesome guest today. Join us as we interview Jaime Gabriel. This guy's going to tell us about missionaries teaching Aztecs. He's going to tell us about Central American uh, violin making rituals, earthquakes and schools falling apart and new schools forming. And at the end, this dude gets to immigrate to the U.S. just in time for a pandemic. We're glad to have him with us. Stay tuned. Rodney Moore, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Well, you have got some great information at your learning trade secrets classes. I want to know how do you get a stuck slide out of a frog on a bow for a violin, viola, or cello? Well, probably the most important thing is uh, first to um, show lots of patience. Sometimes it's really difficult. I try to take the slide out while the frog is still on the stick. If you don't, then you want to sit it on a platform so that you're not going to either cut yourself with the underslide or, mm -hmm. uh, or damage it. Basically, I just use my thumb to press it out. Really? Yeah. A lot of times, though, you don't have enough traction, so you can put a rubber band over it, mm -hmm. and it gives you a little bit more grip. But then sometimes it gets a little bit more difficult than that. And, and uh, part of the problem is as you perspire, the slide actually is starting to dissolve a bit. So sometimes that can sort of solidify the, the, your perspiration. Sounds kind of gross, but it happens. Oh my goodness. And it makes the uh, slide um, a little bit more difficult to get out. Sometimes there's some more difficult things like uh, the person who was the slide in the last time was a little hasty and they mm -hmm. didn't make sure the hair was out of the hair track. Okay. And they press the slide in and it just it, it makes it really tight mm -hmm. or it got glued in always fun later on you're gonna have to come and take a class and we'll show you how to fix that guys make sure you check out learningtradesecrets.com regularly for updates and for classes coming out in 2021 if you need to know more about advanced setup about bow rehairing or bow restoration if you need to learn about varnishing they're the place to go. Again, that's learningtradesecrets.com. All you bench monkeys, welcome to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. Hey, everybody. Jerry Lynn, hello. Rosie Deloach, hello. How are you? Uh, today's a good day. Today is a good day. Yeah, there's been some weird ones. <laughs> well, it's 2020. Uh-huh. Anytime now, you know, Bigfoot's going to come out and say he's real. And the aliens are going to come, and, and it's going to be that. yeah, it's going to be a wild and crazy time. If 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 the beginning of this year is anything like the end is going to be, yeah. And I don't yeah. mean the end, but I just mean the end of 2020. So yeah. today is the continuation of our Made in Americas 
series. And we're really fortunate to have, who's our guest today? What's his name? Uh, I believe his name is Jaime Gabriel, and he's wonderful. Are you out there, Jaime? Yes, I am. Hi. Oh, welcome. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. So when I first heard of of Jaime, it was a couple of years ago, and Pablo Alfaro, who's also been on the show, emailed the admin staff for Oberlin Restoration. He wanted to tell us about some of his students from a restoration course he taught in Mexico. And this is the Pablo who told us his story about meeting the theft ring leader a few months ago, right? That exact Pablo. Okay. Okay. So anyway, he starts talking about his students and he gets to this guy named Jaime. And he's like, you know, Jaime, uh, you know, he's he's okay. He, he's, he's a little bit lazy. Uh-huh. He starts talking about his hygiene. He smells a little bit. And, you know, he starts talking about some assertions about his character being just okay for a guy from Guadalajara. <laughs> he was being very honest. No, 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 no. Actually, I'm, I'm making that all off. He spoke very highly of, of you, Jaime, and the rest of <laughs> of the students from Mexico. And anybody who's met you at a, a VSA function or an SVA function uh, has learned that you're a talented and hardworking dude. And so mm-hmm. we're really happy to have you here, especially to talk about uh, the lecture you gave at the last VSA convention, which was early instrument making traditions from Mexico, Central and South America. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Rose Jerry, I am very honored about doing this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and and Jaime, I, I want to mention first up, you're a Texan. Or now he's a Texan. (laughs) Yes, by way of Mexico. And I'm so happy to have you in this state. So I'm glad you're here, despite everything happening in the United States right now. When you arrive in Texas, do they give you spurs and a gun and a 10-gallon hat? Yeah, that's happened. Uh Uh-huh. And a Texan hat, actually. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so we're, we're really glad that you're here. Um, and so you, you're going to give us a little bit of a history lesson about um, some making in Mexico and so on. Yes. So what are some of the earliest known instances of making below the Rio Grande? Okay, so the indigenous people that used to live in all Central America used to make instruments. This is a very old tradition, but there is no evidence of string instruments. So these would be the Mayans? Well, the oldest culture established in Mexico was the Olmecas. The ones that made the giant heads. Exactly. Carved out of stone. Exactly. And they're kind of a mystery, aren't they? Yes, they are. A lot of a lot of cultures in Mexico just suddenly disappear. So there is a lot of mystery with a lot of those places. So they have a very interesting point of view about their life, their religion, and the world. They have this kind of unity. So a lot of their instruments were made of one single piece. This could be of pottery or wood. And this concept is given by the world was uh, one single piece. So we are part of the everything. 
so the the way they made instruments reflected unity by making it one piece. Exactly. I love it. Yeah, it's very interesting. And as I told you before, there is no evidence of string instruments in Mexico. So undoubtedly, those instruments were brought by the first Spaniards that came to these lands. Mm-hmm. And the first instruments that they brought here was from a military character. So like drums and horns, that sort of thing? Yes. Ah, to strike fear. E, well. No? <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong. I want to hear. No, no, no. Of course. Okay. Those were tough travels for them. And so when Christopher Columbus arrived to the Caribbean islands and come back to Spain, the Spanish and Portuguese divided the world by the treaties of Tordesillas. So they made this divide to have clear rules for both. Also, the Rodrigo Borja, he was a Spanish pope at that time. He was from Valencia. Okay. The same land as, the, as Fernando de Aragón. He was Aragonese. So they established these documents granting permission to conquest the Americas to the Spanish specifically. These documents are called Bulas Papales. Bulas Papales. That's right. Okay. So with these documents, the Spanish have their moral justification for doing whatever that they wanted to do. Yeah. But they have to Christianize all the indigenous in these lands. Ah. I understand that uh, in this time, we that, that's part of why we lost so much history is because uh, a lot of what knowledge the indigenous peoples had was uh, taken away from them, either in the form of whatever was written was taken away, um, or there was just so much disease that they just lost so much of their culture. Yes, we have to speculate a lot of things because there are no evidence. There are no written evidence about the, for example, about the their music. So we just have approximations. Yeah. Unfortunately, also the diseases kill a big percentage of the indigenous population that they haven't been inoculated with the Europeans diseases. Yes. I, um, I also read like the speculation can be like as much as like 95 to 97%. Yeah. That was very high. Yeah. It just, it just basically when you lose that many people, you, you lose that attachment to history. There's not people to hand it down. Exactly. That's right. And also in that time, there was a few cultures that were staying alive at that time. The most important one for sure is the Mexica culture, the Aztecs. Okay. In August 13 of 1521 ends the war between the Spaniards and commanded by Hernán Cortés and the Aztecs. So about 30 years after Columbus came. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So 
With that, there was a Mexican historian that died last year, I think. His name was Miguel Leon de Portilla. He has this beautiful saying that is August 13 of 1521. It wasn't a defeat or a victory, but the painful birth of the Mexican people. Mm. And that's right. I mean, that was a miscegenation between the Spanish and the native cultures. Also, the Catholic kings of Spain, in some of the regulations that they wrote, they specified that the Spaniards can be married with indigenous. You said they can or they cannot? They can. They can? Yeah, they can. So this is the beginning of a blend happening, the state? Yes. Okay. This is the beginning of everything. The Spaniards try to implement the European government structures in the Americas. So let's let's fast forward a little bit. Obviously, the, the church comes into play here and, and how they want to handle worship. And I imagine that has a lot to do with, with instruments. Yes, yeah, so the first music school founded in the American continent was found by Pedro de Gante. He was first cousin of Carlos I of Spain or Charles V of Germany, and it's founded in Texcoco. It's a town 30 minutes away from Mexico City. So he learned the Nahuatl language. The what language? Nahuatl, the language that Aztecs speak. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So he learned that language. He teaches singing carpentry, masonry in that arts and crafts school. So are you saying he was teaching this to the Aztec people? Yes. Wow. The natives. And they found out that natives were very skillful people. They used to learn just by seeing other people's doing things. In that school, they teach to the indigenous all these things that I told you before. And also they taught them ceremony of the mass and they taught them Spanish. So when they were ready, they were sent to another church just made by them. So they were creating missionaries? Exactly. There is a lot of new churches in the whole continent. So it was impossible to import all these instruments from Spain. So it's for sure that they were making new instruments. And with this start miscegenation about characteristics of the native culture based on European instruments. You said miscegenation, is that what I heard? Yeah, like a mixture. So it's a mixing of cultures Yeah. right down to mixing European instruments with local culture. Yes. If I follow, you've got Spanish people in Texcoco that started a school for teaching many things of the arts, including instrument making. But in some ways, it was also um, teaching them Christianity. Yes, we have to remember that the moral justification for the Spaniards to be here was a spiritual conquest of the new souls of the natives. Yeah. So Christianity at that time was a very powerful thing. And they found out, actually, it's a book talking about spiritual and musical conquest 
of the Americas because it was through the music, through the images that they were converting to the Christianity. You know what? That makes perfect sense. And it's done to this day. Like you, you create a a show with an emotional experience and, and then you make it religious. Yep, exactly. In the Middle Ages, you know, most of the population didn't know how to read. So the way that they teach them the Bible lessons and passages were through images. So in in the Americas happens the same. There is a lot of churches, old churches, that, that has paintings of the Bible. And some of those paintings have musical instruments in them. And do we have any evidence of what they looked like or what kind of instruments they were? Yes, yes. Mostly European instruments like angels playing l- lutes or harps, that kind of things. So for a lot of indigenous, this was their base for making new instruments. So they didn't try to reproduce an exact copy of the instrument. They were just basing on those images that they could found on the churches. And they used traditional woods. And that's you. They were creating new instruments. And when you say... Traditional wood, do you mean local wood or traditional European wood? I am sorry. That's okay. I didn't specify. Yes, it's uh, local woods. Local wood, okay. Yeah. So they're indigenous as well. Got it. Yes. We have a lot of different cultures that make their own interpretation for the violin. From my state, that it's in the west part of the country, there is a culture called Birrarica. Birrarica? Birrarica, yeah. So this culture, in order to survive, they didn't adapt completely to the Christianity. So they have their own goats, but also take everything that they were forced to, like Christianity. So they make a reinterpretation of the violin. And this is, this is very interesting. So they make the violin, they make the music, and they have a ritual. They walk a lot of miles to another state in the desert without eat and playing instruments. They have these rituals where they have to record music for violin, and that's the way that the new music has been created. Okay, so it's like taking a spiritual journey out into the desert, but they're... They're bringing their instruments along with them. Yeah, very spiritual. Yeah. Yeah, in that desert, they used to eat peyote, actually. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a fun time. <laughs> Taking a far-out trip in the desert with a violin. Wow. Yeah. I bet the violin sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else might think so, but themselves, I'm sure they sound great. <laughs> so... We have these native interpretations of of Western instruments. When do you start seeing things that are are more like what we would call a, a Western violin? When does when does that start taking place in Mexico? I will say last century, twentieth century, when the institutions of violin making were founded. Also, the National Institute of Fine Arts were founded in the 19th century and the first half 
of the 20th century, most of the instruments were imported from Europe, specifically for, from Germany and Czech Republic. Yeah. So the first, let's call them modern violin makers, were most of all restorers. So you, you had, I'm imagining, similar immigration of people from Europe setting up shop in Mexico and working on instruments. Did that happen as well? Yes, that happened, but not in the same amount that happened in the United States. Gotcha. And so let's jump back a little bit further in time. I remember something from your lecture about uh, really, really old instruments being found in a monastery in Bolivia. Do I have that right? Yeah, in Chiquitos, Bolivia. Pablo was the expert of that topic, but I can tell you that in that region, most of the people that migrate there was from Central Europe. Okay. So a lot of like like a Czech tradition, a, a Polish tradition. Yes. So basically, those type of instruments are very, very similar to the violins from the 16th century of Central Europe. Okay, so we're talking about built on the back, not using a form, yeah. pop block or all one piece. Um, maybe they don't have purfling, uh, higher arches, that sort of thing. Yeah, and also there's one interesting detail about the F-holes. The F-hole wings are not completely separate. Ah, they're connected. The, the The upper lobes and bottom lobes are connected to the top. Yes. Don't some instruments being made... I remember something about seeing bases made in Mexico that have similar F-wings. Do I have that right or am I completely off? That's right. There is this instrument called tololoche. It's basically like a three-quarter double bass with nylon strings, the same tuning, but it's a Mexican interpretation of the double bass. And a lot of them have this type of characteristics. And I just want to make sure I understand when you say the, the upper lobes, are you talking about the, the circular parts of the F-holes? I'm talking about the upper and lower wings. Okay. Yeah. So you have the, the whole body of the F-hole. Yeah. And the circles of the drops. Yes. But the wing, it's one part of the wing connected to the top. So it's not completely separate, the wing. Got it. And these, these early instruments like we found in, we were talking about in Bolivia, do any of them still survive today? I think so. I think so, yeah. Back to Mexico and more modern times. When did the first schools in Mexico start making instruments? Well, there is a, an interesting connection about this. In 1949, Alfredo de Lungo and Luigi Lanaro moves to Argentina. And Alfredo de Lungo moves to, stays in Tucumán. And that is the first violin-making school in the American continent. I think we covered that in our last episode. So if anybody listening, they can check that out. Keep going. So Luigi Lanaro stays in Buenos Aires. So in 1955, starts the military coup in Argentina. And at the same time, Mexico was very stable, economically speaking. 
So the Mexican government extends an invitation to Luigi Lanaro to found the first violin making school in Mexico. This school opens in 1955 and it closes in 1978. And this was a four-year program. And where did things go from there? Uh, obviously, you attended a school in Mexico. My school, it's a completely separate program to that school. It's, it's like a movie talking about this, you know. In 1970, an earthquake occurs in Mexico City, and the roof of this school in one of the main shops falls and they have to be relocated to the National Conservatory of Music. But in 1972, uh, an economical crisis cut the funding for this school. Holy cow. And in 1973, Luigi Lanaro moves back to Italy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't blame him. In 1978, dies in a car accident the director of this violin-making school and the National Institute of Fine Arts decide to close this school. Some of these students moves to the violin-making school in Cremona, actually. Really? Yes. And did that inspire um, a new school to start in Mexico or anywhere else in South America? Well, what happened in South America, I cannot tell you exactly, but in 1987, in the framework of Mexico-France, the Mexican government extends an invitation to the French violin maker and restorer Ludwig Becker to open a restoration course that was very successful. And then they extend to him to make a new violin making school. That is my school. Which is in Querétaro. In Querétaro, yeah. It's two hours north in Mexico City. What started it for you? What made you one day decide, violin making, this is it for me, this is what I want to do? When did you get the sickness? Yeah. <laughs> well, at the age of 16, I entered to the music conservatory of my city in the University of Guadalajara. I study a minor degree in cello. Oh, he's a cellist. Well, I wouldn't say that. I, I can tune a cello, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't say that I am a cellist. So I used to make, in my free time, a lot of manual craft. I used to work as a welder, and also I used to paint cars. Dude, what's your problem? You can make more money welding and painting cars than you can as a violin maker. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, keep going. I met this self-taught violin maker in Guadalajara, and I go to his house and start learning violin making. Then when I finish my degree in that school, I apply for the violin making school and now I am in Texas saying howdy and y'all. And... <laughs> so the school in Carretero, uh, how is it How is it structured? How many years is it? Yeah. Well, it is a good school. It's a five-year program. My admission exam was at two weeks full of exams. Wow, it's intense. Yeah, it's very intense. So they make you exams of math, physics, chemistry, they make you to plane pieces of wood to specific measurements. 
also paintings they erase one part of them and they gave you the, the basic colors and a small brush so you have to make a restoration of that oh. they break a jar of pottery and they give you some glue and a brush so you have to put it back together all the pieces oh they're making you do puzzles yeah that <laughs> kind of things so this is a public school and the numbers of the students it's very reduced so when you say it's a public school what age are you starting you can start as soon as you finish your high school okay because this is the only school in the world that has a bachelor degree in it. Yeah. So it's a five-year program. It's very long. Yeah, a trade school with a bachelor degree is is almost unheard of in the violin trade. Yes. How did you meet Pablo? Well, Pablo in 2016 was invited to the school to do a talk because everybody in Mexico knows Pablo, unfortunately. <laughs> Oh, of course, it's for his good work, and also he's a fantastic violinist. So he visits the school, and he shares with us his experience in the violin-making trade and in the music trade. He didn't study in my school violin-making. He studied in the Taller Libre de Lauderia. It was a, a program that disappeared from the University of Veracruz. That was the first time that I met him, and that really inspired me. The next time that I saw him was at the 2016, in the same year, but like six months later, in the BSA at Cleveland. So you came to the U.S. to meet some Americans, huh? Yes, I actually I won a scholarship to study English as a second language in the State University of New York at Oswego. Obviously, it was a total failure. <laughs> <laughs> but I was talking to Pablo, so he invited me. He told me that this was going to blow my mind. And actually, that happened. It was crazy for me to be at the BSA. It was only the two last days. But I saw the high level of the violin makers of the U.S. Incredible. And that's the reason that I'm here. Then the next year, I I asked Pablo an antiquing varnish course. So I went to his house and I stayed with him two weeks learning how he antique his instruments. So two weeks at Pablo's house has to be pretty fattening. It is, yeah. Because <laughs> I've seen how that man cooks and, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You're totally right. <laughs> Weekend at Pablo's is like the three most fattening words in the English language. <laughs> So, Jaime, you went to the VSA convention in Cleveland 2016. Yes. Was that the beginning of you saying, I, I have to move here? Yes, absolutely. And I do want to say for the record, Jaime, I'm really glad you're here. And I hope that your experience here is wonderful. Likewise. I'm super glad you're here as well. Yeah. No, you're not, Jerry. Be honest. <laughs> Yeah, because when we get off the phone, I'm going to call up Pablo and I'm going to say to him, like, dude, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> He's a fraud. <laughs> well, Jaime, what are your hopes for you and your family in the future? 
well, I wish I could work for a violin expert or a violin restorer like Mr. Pasevich or Gregory Sapp in Chicago because I want to learn. I want to grow up in this trade. So you want to be exposed to some of the really high-level shops and high-level makers in the States? Yes. I see no reason why that won't be in your future. <laughs> I, I, have, I see that. Well, you cannot underestimate the stupidity of one guy. So, <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Jaime, you've been a wonderful guest. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I am so appreciative of your time and clearly your research and helping us understand a little bit more about how all this formed through history. I'm really glad to be here. I'm really glad. I appreciate this opportunity to share a personal point of view of things that happened in Mexico. Guys, again, that's Jaime Gonzalez via Guadalajara, correct? Yep. Going to school in Queretaro. Queretaro. And um, now living in Houston, working at a violin shop. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Jaime. Thank you very much. Chris, during the interview, Jaime mentioned a people and he said the name and then I repeated the name and the name that I said was Virotica. Okay. <laughs> the very erotica? Yes. Or the virile erotica. Um, yes. Yes. That's what I heard. But uh, <laughs> erotica. It's birarica. Birarica. And it, birarica. And it, it translates to the people. Uh-huh. And he told us the story about how this indigenous people made violins and then they went out into the desert and got crazy high on peyote. And um, I kind of like laughed a little about that because it sounds silly, but I, I want to take you a little bit deeper into the situation because I know that you love the indigenous peoples and I do too. I also and... love peyote. So Okay, good. This story is for you. Thank you. This is just straight off of Wikipedia, by the way. Uh, Score. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The Birarica, the people. Okay, it is... Wirikuta, where the people go each year to collect peyote. Before reaching Wirikuta, their final destination, they pass by the sacred springs of Tate Matineri. I hope I said that right. Tate Matineri. Yeah, which translates to where our mother lives, the house of the eastern rain goddess. They cross steps along the way. The first one is the cloud gate. The second where the clouds open. This pilgrimage takes place annually as a desire to return to where life originated and heal oneself. Mm. The Birarica assume roles of gods along the trail that they usually take by foot. Upon arrival in Wirikuta, the hunt begins and the first cactus that is found is shared among everyone. Then they harvest enough peyote for the year. After the work is done, they eat enough peyote to have visions. And during the visions, the shaman speaks to the gods and ensures the regeneration of their souls. Nice. This is where these people 
are taking their violins on this journey. And if that's not the romance of violin making, I don't know what is. That's wonderful. Imbuing uh, not only uh, their communal spirit, but imbuing the production of the instruments with some ritual that's larger than them. That that yeah. feels very, very nice to me. And I think we've talked a little bit about that too. I feel a connection to that when, when I am doing repair work or making, like I have to spiritually be there uh, or it's just not coming together. And I, I know that's not true for everybody, but that's, that's how it works for me. Certain jobs, for sure. Um, yeah. And that's why um, I take a day off from being present in the shop when clients are allowed to come by. And then I work Mondays, usually by myself in the workshop. Um, mm, nice. Mondays are usually fitting base bars and doing final touch-up. I cannot do the work that is expected of my name or my reputation on steps like that when I'm answering the phone and explaining to rental mothers why they have to pay to replace a string and a bridge when their their kid used the cello for a cricket bat, you know. Oh, oh you're like you're you're speaking to my soul, Chris, because <laughs> since we started <laughs> this shutdown, <laughs> I set up a workbench at home. Like and like we like have this room that's like this little tiny room in the back. It's basically a junk room and I cleared it out. And I put a workbench in there and got everything set up just just so. And when I am there, there is nobody calling about the small details. And my my <sighs> employees, as much as I love them and they're awesome and they like run the shop really well, there's not a million little questions about this detail, that detail. And and then I have to be interrupted to do a sale. I love them. They're a bunch of bastards. Sorry. No, Sorry. they're the best ever. <laughs> um, yeah, and and the days that I get to stay home, like that's my official bow rehairing station now. Nice. And Do you, does that feel very meditative to you? The the work on bows. Now that it's less interrupted, I enjoy it more. I feel like the quality of my work is better because I'm I can really devote more mental focus to to appreciating that bow, giving it what it needs, making it right. Oh, it feels good. <sighs> That's great. Uh, That's great. Yeah. You guys just spoke to Jaime. Um, yeah. And I, I think really highly, highly of highly of Jaime. And okay. uh, he just managed to get his O one visa to work in the States as an individual of exceptional skill mm -hmm. who will be a boon to the United States of America because mm -hmm. of his talents, because of his attitude, and because of uh, his drive to to really be a, a, a great part of our industry here in the States as a violin maker. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, just congratulations, man. I, I wrote yeah. some stuff for a lawyer for him, but um, it's a long process. And this current regime in place is not friendly to the process. And it's a, it's a huge win. Yeah, I agree. When we interviewed Jaime, I tried to call him out on how he must be really special to yeah, uh, yeah. have been able to immigrate. And he really like kind of belittled himself. Yeah. And it's not just the Latino Johnny Neutro hair. The mm -hmm. 
you know, that, that sticks up at 45 degrees and is a foot tall. It's also his skills and his heart that are that great. Yeah. And you know what, as he was talking to me about some of the indigenous peoples and some of the early making in the Americas, I was reminded of how much culture is lost uh, due to it being suppressed due to disease. And um, while we're not in the same situation today, I certainly feel echoes of that. And man, I, I feel hopeful, Chris. I feel hopeful that today's people, today's communities are more welcoming that that want to keep other cultures alive, other heritages alive, because that's that's how the United States is enriched by people like Jaime coming to contribute and coming to be a part of our community. And I'm so thankful to have him. Yeah. Okay. So um, ask me about my violin. Tell me about your violin. <laughs> uh, it is going at a snail's pace, yes. but I am, I am doing it still. I didn't forget about it. It's still looking at me and I'm looking at it. What uh, is its name? It's, oh, I don't have a name yet, but I will. That's La Destruce. <laughs> the COVID. Uh, my favorite thing to date is bending ribs. Oh, it's nice, huh? I love it. I love, I love that you have to like get them like super, super thin. Like, like <laughs> the the book says like one point five millimeters, but I'm like, what? One point five is like a viola seabout rib. Um, well, you can. You're almost guaranteed to break a rib at that thickness. Because it's too thick. It's too thick. Yeah. So you have to turn the iron up so hot that you burn the rib irrevocably, irrevocably, irrevocably low. That one. So when you get it closer to one millimeter, then it wants to cooperate. It's like, you want to bend? Cool. Let's do this dance. Mm -hmm. And um, it is so fun getting like that curve just so, and like getting a little bit of moisture on it. And then you hear it go make that singe or not the singe, the (laughs) yeah. Oh my gosh. I could do that for days. Like if I could find a job where I just spent ribs, I would delight in that. Holy cow. It's so fun. I'll pay you for rib structures. Okay, cool. Got yeah. this. All right. So that's where I am. And um, I have glued. You know to glue the seabouts in first. Yes. I glued okay. the seabouts in and then I glued the bottom. Mm-hmm. And I have not glued the top. And I have not like got the pretty cut that you're supposed to get at, at the what is it called? Yeah. The little the pointy points. The miter. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I think the next thing after that is I get to start like cutting some plates, like top plate and bottom plate. Yeah, linings. Oh, I forgot about the linings. Do you know offhand how thick your mold, your form is, top to bottom? As long as there's at least eight or nine millimeters on either side, 
the best thing is to put both sets of linings in and train yourself to get the form out, even though it's more difficult okay. with both sets in because you get an accurate read. So the way we were taught German style in school is to use a much thicker mold or form and then to only put one set of linings in, do both plates, then remove the, the form, put the second set of linings in, uh, change the shape of the rib structure by doing that, and then your outline is off. Okay. That sounds like a, a fun challenge. I'm in. I love yeah. it. <laughs> and if you put both sets in, you, you like wrestle it out. It's fun. The linings. This is for for the newbies. The, um, the thing inside that you attach to the ribs to basically give the ribs enough real estate so you can glue it to the plates. Yeah. To the, the top and the bottom. If you don't have the linings inside, then it, nothing's going to really stay together very well. Because that one one millimeter thick is... Thick real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Thick. With two C's. I see what you're saying. If you do the top linings or the bottom, if you do one and then you take it out of the form, the bottom can be, or the, the opposite side can be like a little bit warped by nature of pulling it out. Yeah. And, and when you finally do put the linings in, um, mm -hmm. you're forcing two bent objects together to form a median mm -hmm. fair mm -hmm. curve. Um, and then the shape changes. So the real answer is to do it the way that we think people suspect the Cremonese did it, which is to leave your plates over large and then finalize overhang purfling okay. and okay. channel with the box closed. You've already finished the inside and I've always been kind of scared. Okay. So let me make sure I understand. All right. So the thing that I see people do where they get their little washer and they trace the, like the whole sides on the plate, the they do that before they take it out of the mold. Uh, no. no. no the, well, well, yes, I'm sorry. So the, yeah. the, the way I was taught is to do that, yes. Okay, okay. And then... And in order, to, in order to do the linings in whatever order you want and be totally safe that your overhang uh -huh. is accurate when you're done, mm -hmm. you cut the plates out an extra few millimeters wide everywhere. Okay. You finish all the work, and then you cut your outline with the top and back glued on the finished ribbon and linings. Okay. Okay. You know, I'm still not totally all the way done with my scroll, but that doesn't matter, right? People, You've done like two scrolls, right? I've done two scrolls, but people save the scrolls for the end, right? People do all okay. sorts okay. of shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm, totally. really, I'm really a fan of doing all of it 80%. Uh -huh. <laughs> because I just want to move on. And... No, I get it. <laughs> I have more than 30 times in the, these 20 years looked down and I'm varnishing an instrument and like the neck isn't shaped <laughs> and the edge work isn't done. And it's just like, I just had to, I just, I'll do the edge work after the varnish dries. I don't care. Oh my gosh. Well, guys, would you like to send us a story about your experience making, learning the trade, weird stuff on your bench? Would you like to send us a mask that you made from your used underpants? That says Omo on it, please. please. I would wear that. <laughs> uh, after thorough bleaching. Yeah. Uh, are you um, a player? 
And you have a horror story about your violin falling apart in the middle of a performance? Or do you just crush a lot and you have a horror story about your violin falling apart in the middle of a performance? Do you just enjoy sitting on violins and you want to send pictures to us of sitting on violins? Have you ever considered a violin a very well-varnished egg? <laughs> what? Because they're sitting on it, right? They're like, there you go. Uh, there you go. I got it. Thanks. We want to hear your story. Email us at mail at omopod.com or leave us a message on our OMA phone, 240-686-5345. I do want to say quickly, for those of you who are Patreon subscribers, and we just got one more today. Thank you, Peter Subramian. Thank you, Peter. I just want to say a lot of our sponsors are feeling the pinch right now with uh, the economy. And you guys, with your continued pledge to help us out, it helps pay our monthly bills to just keep this going. So we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Uh, if you want to be a part of that, you can go to patreon.com and search for Omopod. Don't just search for Omo because that's like a weird, I think it's like a manga thing. I don't know. <laughs> Join us next time where we discuss hot bow action. Hot bow action. With bow maker Matt Welling, yeah. who makes the Ferrari of bows. That's what his website says. Yeah, what a dork, Matt, you <laughs> dork. Does it really say that? <laughs> I love Matt. That's so dorky. He has all the dirt on French making schools. Yeah. We're going to hear it all. Looking forward to it, Matt. Going to be great. Matt is wonderful for 1 a.m. He'll show up with a mandolin and go, hey, I just figured out this Beatles tune backwards. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait to talk to him. <laughs> all right, Ross, oh. you're the best. Uh, thanks for, for, for doing this and for being uh, a hinge in my connection to this industry that I love so much. Oh, thank you, buddy. Thank you. I love what you're doing. I love chatting with you. Um, all you homo sapiens out there, keep your head on straight and uh, don't do anything stupid. It's okay to be a little bit crazy. Find a healthy outlet. You're going you're gonna to be all right. Yes. Love you guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Omo is an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.